welcome back to The Corner of Story and Game, a podcast about the intersection of storycraft and game design. This week, we have Mark Meir at the table. Mark is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and improv artist, best known for bringing life to Commander Shepard and other characters in the Mass Effect franchise. He has also voiced characters in Dragon Age and many other games. Here at home in Canada, he is a very well-known theater and improv actor, performing with various groups such as Die Nasty, Rapid Fire Theater, and Gordon's Big Bald Head. Mark, thank you for taking the time to chat. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, before we jump into talking craft and acting and gaming, why don't you take us back? Can you give me a little bit of a brief overview of the journey you took into the world of of gaming and where did where did you start gaming like how did you get into that first we're talking tabletop gaming tabletop video games because you do have your toes in both worlds this is true this is very true uh i mean my gaming journey began in my childhood i was about uh, 10 years old when i played my first dungeons and dragons game with uh some older kids actually and uh they brought me in because they needed somebody to play a cleric and nobody wanted to play a cleric so so that was my very first Dungeons and Dragons character. Uh, I do remember that Fiend Folio was a new release uh, that my dungeon master had uh, just gotten his hands on. So yeah, that would, yeah, I think that came out in '81. So yeah, it was uh, it was a long time ago. Where I am very old, and uh, so I I started with first edition Dungeons and Dragons. So were there any games aside from Dungeons and Dragons that had a kind of an impact on who you became as a storyteller or? Uh, let's see, back in the day, uh, it was mostly Dungeons and Dragons, and of course I uh, subscribed to Dungeon, or sorry, Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine, yeah. uh, and so I knew of a lot of other game systems, uh, Call of Cthulhu, for example. I didn't actually play that until later, like, you know, when, when I was in, I think, my first year of university or so, but I did have uh, books for it, and uh, Marvel Super Heroes role-playing games, actually, something that I played a fair bit back in the 1980s. Once I moved to this Edmonton for university, I uh, joined the University of Alberta Fantasy Gamers Club, and that introduced me to GURPS, which I got heavily into for quite a while. And I actually had a long-running GURPS Supers campaign that I uh, co- co-ran with a friend of mine. And GURPS, just as a system, I, I really enjoyed. I uh, Loved the source books in particular. There were certain branches of GURPS that I never actually played, but I, I devoured the source books. I, I really enjoyed their their world books, especially. So you're not originally from Edmonton. Where did you Where did you come? From? Uh, a small town called Sedgwick, uh, which is about 900 people. It's a couple of hours east of Edmonton. How did I not know you were from Sedgwick? That is insane. It's crazy. I'm from Irma, so. Oh well, there you go. Yes. That is, wow, small world. You're obviously, we'll get into the game stuff, but you're better known for your acting, your voice acting, your improv acting. How did you get into acting? Well, we mentioned Sedgwick. Uh, when you went to school in Sedgwick in you know the 1980s, uh, drama was not an option. You'd had no drama class. Uh, so I never took drama in high school at all. Right. But I was very much a fan of SCTV, Monty Python, Kids in the Hall, so I always enjoyed comedy. Uh, when I moved to Edmonton, I got involved with the Teen Festival of the Arts at the Citadel Theater because I, you know, I, I'd always been interested in acting, but I'd never had any opportunity, not even a drama class. Uh, and so, like, unlike a lot of people, I hadn't done improvisation in high school at all. 
there was a thing called, as I said, the Teen Festival of the Arts. And what they did is they brought in established artists, uh, usually playwrights, and they would write a show for the festival and cast teens in it. And basically, it was your chance to work with established artists, uh, Stuart Lemoyne, uh, Brad Fraser, uh, well-known Canadian playwrights. And that particular year, they brought in Three Dead Trolls in a Baggie, who was a Edmonton comedy troupe, uh, had their own show on CBC at the time. And they essentially cast teens, but unlike the other shows, they weren't writing it. They they said, we're going to cat, we're going to make a comedy troupe, and you guys will write the sketches and you'll perform it. And they, they would direct. Unlike everybody else, I had no idea what improv is. Like for me at that point, it's like, oh yeah, evening at the improv, that's stand-up, right? And so I, I barely, I didn't even really know about that. Uh, so I was introduced to improv during that process because they took us to Rapid Fire Theater and gave us improv classes and with the view that improv is a great way to generate sketches because we were doing sketch comedy at the time. But once I started doing improv, I never looked back. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I became a member of Rapid Fire Theater and it really it all just led from there. Wow. Cool. So how did you move from that kind of acting into voice acting for Bioware? Uh, the old fashioned way. I went to an audition. Uh, people often ask me, you know, so how do you become a voice actor? Well, first thing, be an actor. Right. And then land a voice gig and then you're a voice actor. Uh, so I'd done some, some voiceover stuff, you know, like some radio stuff and commercials. Like when you're an actor, especially when you don't have another job besides acting, you will go to a lot of different auditions and one week you might be doing a play and one week you might be doing a commercial and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I had done some voiceover for radio and things like that at that point. Uh, when I heard about Bioware, uh, going back to three dead trolls in a baggie and atomic improv. Uh, three did Trolls in a Baggie, uh, Wes uh, Borg and Joe Bird from The Trolls, and Paul and Donovan from Atomic Improv, they voiced uh, MDK2, which was one of Bioware's first games. So they basically played everyone that's in that game. And so when I found out about this, I, I, my first reaction was, there's a video game company in town? And the second thing out of my mouth was, if you ever hear about any auditions, let me know. Because uh, I'd love to do that because, you know, I'm a big nerd. I, I played video games uh, and they were doing Dungeons and Dragons games right. as well, like the original Baldur's Gate and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, at that point, they'd done MDK2. They, I knew they did Baldur's Gate. And then for Baldur's Gate 2, they actually had big, what they used to call cattle call auditions, where just everybody in town shows up and we all showed up at a studio. Everybody did their few minutes in the booth and Bioware took all those auditions. Uh, and I did get a callback and was cast for a single line at in the final cutscene right. of Baldur's Gate 2. But that final line was apparently enough for Bioware to keep calling me back for pretty much every subsequent game they worked on. And I often credit the fact that I was a Dungeons & Dragons player with giving me an in there because they they knew I played and they knew that they wouldn't have to explain anything to me or they wouldn't have to explain too much. Th they, they wouldn't have to go into detail about, okay, so there's a place called the Forgotten Realms and there's dragons and, the, you know, I knew, I, I knew all the lore. I was able to go in the booth and the example I always give is, you're playing a kobold shaman. I wouldn't go, what's a kobold? What's a shaman? I'm just like, great, they're lawful evil. And, and just step into the booth and go from there. Also helped that I lived probably at that point about a five minute walk from the studio uh, so they could call me up whenever and I could come in and do lines. Uh, so I worked on 
Baldur's Gate 2, uh, on all the expansions that came out for that, uh, Throne of Ball and uh, you know, Shadows of Om, worked on Kingmaker, worked on Neverwinter Nights, uh, a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons based stuff they were doing. And as I say, pretty much every subsequent game, so uh, Jade Empire, all those sorts of things. When Mass Effect came along, I was actually brought on very early in the process, uh, not as I wasn't even cast at that point. No one was cast. Uh, this was all in the concept art stage. And I was asked to put together a presentation just on what the typical members of every alien race would sound like. So hmm. we did, and some. It, they let me basically formulate it and came in with this presentation. Uh, some of the stuff was very obvious, like, you know, the Krogans will probably have big, you know, deep, gruff voices. And uh, some of the my advice they took and some uh, they didn't, uh, my suggestions, for example, the, you know, the bolus, their, their little wheezy sound when they talk, that just seemed to make sense because of the, the apparatus that they wear. Mm -hmm. uh, I did make a suggestion that the Turians, because of their... The structure of their mouths that they have like a little clicking sound when they talk like either at the beginning or end of sentences and i know why they didn't go with that because this was before garrus was a main character so if you've got a turian with you almost all the time maybe that clicking thing might get old after a while yeah but i do like to uh say that i'm the reason why solarians sound like steve buscemi <laughs> because that was one of the early demos i did was a solarian bartender that just had that kind of cadence and uh so yeah, I was basically creating the baseline for all the alien races. And during that process, I was asked to audition for the main role for Commander Shepard in the game. And I held out no hope whatsoever of getting it. So it was just like, oh, okay, I'm I'm doing some alien stuff. I'll, I'll come in, I'll record a few lines. That's great. And over the course of weeks, uh, you know, they let me know. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you, you made the call back. You're in the next rounds. Like, okay, sure. Still not holding out any hope. Until they told me that it was down to three people and I was one of them. It was me and uh, two guys from Los Angeles. And I was like, well, of course, one of the guys from Los Angeles will get it. And I'll, I'll get to do a bunch of aliens. So I, no one was more surprised than me when I was told that, yes, you are going to be Commander Shepard and a bunch of aliens. So, and of course, the other thing was, you know, the, the other little surprise was, oh, and by the way, uh, the female version of Commander Shepard is going to be one of the most prolific voice actors in the world, literally a... Guinness Book of World Records holder, Jennifer Hale, who I was a huge fan of. Uh, you know, I've, I played games that she was in because I'd done demo work on Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, so I, I knew her from games as Bastille Lashan, of course. But I was a huge fan of hers from her animation work because I'm a big comic book fan. Uh, all her work on, you know, the Batman, the animated series and uh, the Justice League cartoon. Uh, so, yeah, it was a real it was a real thrill. She's amazing. Certainly is. And an excellent person. Right. That does not surprise me even a little bit. So looking back, what would you say was your, do you have like a favorite memory? Obviously there's lots of voice work coming, but from the voice work that you've done so far in your career, do you have like a favorite memory? Well, let's see. I mean, hmm, there's a lot, there's a lot of great memories. Uh, and, and especially a lot of great memories of interactions with fans after the fact, you know, in, in conventions and getting to meet the cast through conventions because we all recorded separately. Uh, even the even the people who were all in Los Angeles, they all recorded separately. I was up, up here in Canada. We had people in England. So uh, most of the cast I met because we started to do conventions together. And that's that's how I, I actually got to meet people in person. There'd been a few Zoom calls and things like, or, well, I guess it was before Zoom calls, Skype. Uh, <laughs> it would probably been. But uh, the favorite memory, I guess it would probably be getting to watch Martin Sheen's final recording session is the elusive man 
uh, because I happened to be in LA at the time. And uh, our director, uh, Caroline Livingstone, just called Jennifer and I, she, she was living in LA at the time, and uh, just asked us both, it's like, do you want to meet Martin Sheen and, and watch his final session? We're like, of course. Uh, so we went down to this very nice uh, studio in Burbank, and it's one of those studios that has like a large area for, for guests you, where you can watch and sit on a comfy couch and have freshly baked cookies and brought to you and whatever you wanted to drink. Uh, so that was nice. But the, you know, obviously the, the, the crowning part of that day was actually getting to meet Martin Sheen. Very nice man. Very, very nice fellow. And getting to watch him do the elusive man's death scene. And he was very gracious. He, uh, he ended up signing stuff for us as well. Bioware was getting some stuff signed, uh, and, it was a big dark horse collection of the mass effect comics. And, uh, I think it was Casey just asked me, Hey, you know, would you like one of these? I was like, yes, please. Thank you. I'll take it. What advice would you give to your younger self? What's like, if you could give one piece of advice back through time without upsetting the time paradox conundrum, mm -hmm. what one piece of advice would you give to yourself? Hmm. Never stop being nerdy because it, 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 it you know, the nerds eventually, uh, rule the world. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I'd probably, you know, it's not practical advice, but I would probably say, don't worry, there will be comic book movies besides the 1989 version of Batman. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I I was a kid growing up in the 80s who was, you know, just all we want is an X-Men movie, all we want is an X-Men movie. And we got one, we got several. Uh, I would probably, you know, advise, it's like, well, the, the first couple are pretty good. And then, you know, and then it, it's, it's kind of up and down from there, but, you know. Again, like the the sheer power that fandoms had, we didn't we didn't have that when I was you know a nerdy kid growing up in Sedgwick. I I think I that would offer me some solace. Yeah. And not only will all this exist, you'll get to go around the world to conventions as a guest. That it's a cool ride. It's not talked about as often, but you're actually a talented writer as well as actor. Oh well, please, thank you. Um, well, hey, not just my words. You've been nominated for all kinds of awards. Mm. I guess. I, we focus on writing and, and gameplay here. So I guess I would quickly just, what are some unique challenges when it comes to writing for things like theater, audio only, like po a narrative podcast or CBC radio, you've done some writing for CBC. Mm -hmm. What are unique challenges to that medium? Well, I've mostly written sketch. I have, I have written one play. The it, It's adapted from a book called The Damned Highway, which is a fantastic novel by uh, Brian Keene and Nick Bamatis. Uh, it's essentially... Hunter S. Thompson meets H.P. Lovecraft. That's the best way to put it. And uh, I adapted that into a one-man show, which I, I toured a little bit. I did at the Fringe Festival to some success, and it, I believe it was nominated uh, for a Sterling Award. And beyond that, I've mostly written for Tiny Plastic Men, uh, The Irrelevant Show, and Caution May Contain Nuts. Uh, Irrelevant Show and Caution May Contain Nuts are both sketch shows. Uh, Tiny Plastic Men... Uh, which is available if you're in the States and the UK, I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, here in Canada, I believe it's all up on YouTube or on Tubi or something these days. Uh, we we were originally on Super Channel, but that one was a sort of a hybrid of a sketch uh, show and a sitcom. And I was uh, one of the series creators and one of the writers as well and one of the three leads. And that one... That one in particular was a lot of fun because uh, we did have a sitcom plot that we would throw to sketches occasionally and the sketches would be inspired by what was happening in the sitcom plot. So, yeah, I guess I, 
the, you, you're act, getting back to your actual question. Mm -hmm. The unique challenges of it. I guess I'm most used to writing for the stage. Uh, so my biggest challenge when I was writing for television was, okay, everything's got to be formatted properly because you're not the only one who has, it's, it, it can't just be chicken scratches and it's like, oh yeah, I remember how it goes. Right. Uh, because, you know, when you're doing sketch comedy and you're one of the people performing it, then that's fine. Then you have shorthand and whatnot. But when you have a production crew, things have to be done a certain way and everything has to be formatted properly. And of course you have to make sure the art department is getting all the information they need. So yeah, that was, that was a bit of a learning curve for me. And then, and radio, I mean, radio is great because you have a limitless budget. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, you might have to drop a few cents on specific sound effects uh, if you if you don't actually have a sound effects library already. But we were working for CBC and they did. There's a question I like to ask. It's a little tougher of a question, but and I guess that would be what would you say has been your biggest challenge and or failure in your career? And what did you learn from it? So I don't think it. Hopefully I haven't had it yet or no. Hopefully it's already passed and then there's nothing but success. In the That's what we're assuming. Yes. Jeez, that's a puzzler. I don't know. I'm pretty happy with the way things worked out. I never thought I'd make it here. I never thought I'd get to be a guest at uh, at conventions. That's true. Well, that's a fantastic point of view. So, what's the best compliment you've ever received? I mean, people are nice. So, I, any compliment that that I receive, I'm, I cherish. You're just such a nice guy. So, back to voice acting for a few minutes. <laughs> You're known for a lot of different characters, bringing a lot of different characters to life. So obviously you've had a great deal of experience when it comes to doing voice acting for video games. What would you say is the hardest part of being a voice actor? What's the toughest part of the job? Well, it is a somewhat lonely occupation in that, as opposed to stage, you're not getting feedback from the audience. You're not on stage with your fellow actors. You are pretty much providing everything with your imagination. Uh, so that, uh, that can be a challenge. Uh, luckily, you know, I've, I've, I've been pretending all my life. Uh, and I, I do think that I always credit, as I mentioned, Dungeons and Dragons with sort of being my first acting experience because that was, that's, I, that was my school that I didn't take drama classes. I guess it's, it's a lot like stand up, you know, that's a, that's a lonely occupation as well. Uh, so it's mostly trying to be in the moment, which improv really helps you. And improv does let you just sort of drop into that situation that you find yourself in and also bouncing back and forth, especially when you're recording a vast amount of dialogue like we did for the Mass Effect games. You're, you, you generally don't have everything. This is confined to one discrete scene. You might be, OK, now we're doing something from way later in the game. Now we're doing something from the middle of the game. And we really rely on our directors to keep us on track and just give us context for, you know, OK, so this happens after this and you can put it all together. And so for, for Jennifer and I, uh, who were like the main characters in that game, that was vital because a character who's just showing up and doing a particular scene, you kind of know where your character, this is the beginning, middle and end. And, you know, you might have, and here's my character's death scene later, and then you move on. But especially because Commander Shepard is a character that doesn't actually have fixed characteristics necessarily. Commander Shepard could be anything from a completely by the books noble boy scout to uh, a borderline psychopath who is still saving the universe but right. not being very polite about it uh, so keeping the different tracks the renegade and paragon paths separate that is a challenge and again we relied very heavily on the directors for that right you mentioned the fact that you don't have an audience to get that immediate feedback you're not 
A, you're not getting the dopamine fix, but also you're not getting, you know, corrections and notes and things that you can apply later. And so how is that completely the director? Is there an internal process that you have to help you like, hey, that doesn't work. I need to try it this way kind of thing. Uh, oh, certainly. Yeah. Our director was always open. Caroline uh, Livingstone, uh, who I did most of my work with, and uh, Shauna Perry on the first game. They were always very open to, you know, if I did a take and was like, uh, I'd like to try that again, even if they're they're like, oh, that'll do. It's like, mm, I think I can nail that if I if I try it again. So, yeah, you you rely on yourself and you rely on the director. And the director, of course, has the big picture in mind. So they are able to. It's like, OK, uh, could you. You know, they know in this scene, for example, it's like, ah, you're actually yelling this across a 10 foot chasm. So, you know, try to pitch that up a little bit. Don't yell into the mic, obviously, because you're going to, you know, peak the levels. But they they're very good for being able to give you that those sort of pointers to help deliver a more nuanced performance. Fantastic. So you're uh, you're, you're still doing voice acting today. Or is, or is there any games right now that you are allowed to tell me about that you're working on or stuff? Uh, yes, I think, well, there is one I, I don't think I've been officially announced yet, so I don't think I can, I don't think I can quite say, but, uh, most recently I got to check a little item off the nerd bucket list, which was to play an established supervillain, established comic book supervillain, uh, in Gotham Knights. I got to be the voice of Starro the Conqueror, uh, who mm, your listeners might know from, uh, the most recent Suicide Squad movie. He's a giant alien starfish, right. essentially. Yeah. Yes, who mind controls people uh, by putting starfishes on their faces. Uh, so, he, and you know, I I love goofy Silver Age comic books, and uh, so yeah, getting to play a classic DC Comics villain like Starro was was great. Uh, and that just came out. I was in the the DLC for that. I also played like a number of voices. I was uh, Batgirl's drone. Uh, I think his name was Waffles. I want to say. <laughs> And uh, various others, I mean, some informants, you know, the guy on the street who's like, hey, hey, bad girl, hey, Robin, I got a tip for you, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was fairly recent. Uh, what else is, oh, and of course, The Long Dark, which is an ongoing game. Uh, they're sort of release it in chapters or the narrative portion, uh, anyway, in chapters, uh, much like the, the old Walking Dead games used to get released from Telltale. Uh, that's from Hinterland Studio. And uh, it's a... A game I always describe as player versus Canada. Uh, so it's a survival game, uh, but it's not, it is post-apocalyptic, but it's a very beautiful apocalypse because a geomagnetic event has knocked out all power on Earth. And uh, my character is a bush pilot who is in the air over northern Canada when it happens, and so you crash. And it's basically trying to survive, not freeze to death or starve or be eaten by wolves or what have you and scrounging through cabins for food, and then eventually learning how to build snares and learning how to hunt and, you know, scavenging you know, what you can to in increase the insulation factor of your clothes. Uh, so, like I say, player versus Canada. You know, that's that's what we go through every week. And the fun thing about uh, The Long Dark is that Jennifer Hale is also in the game, and in this game we play a divorced couple. Uh, so we're not playing the same person, so we actually get to have scenes together, which is very nice. There's some great uh, other actors in there. Uh, David Hader uh, is in it. Uh, Elias Defexis, uh great bunch of folks, and we're all Canadian. So yes, player versus Canada. That's what we call winter here. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before we move on from voice acting, I guess if you give one piece of advice to writers who are writing dialogue that it's eventually going to come out of the mouth of a voice actor, what would that piece of advice? Be? I'll go with uh, Harrison Ford's advice to George Lucas, which is, yeah, it's easy to write this 
but it's not necessarily easy to say it. So uh, maybe try saying saying it out loud and see how that rolls off the tongue. And actually, during the process of recording, the Bioware was always very good about this, and especially because sometimes uh, Mac Walters was actually sitting in on my sessions, and they were always very good about uh, this. Is you know this sentence is a bit of a mouthful. Do you mind if I say it this way, or you know in, just change these words around? Still saying the same information, right? But uh, sometimes it's easier to get it out that way, and. The one thing that we had to do was be very careful because sometimes Jennifer had to do that as well. And depending on who recorded first, they always had to be very careful to track those changes, make sure that whoever was recording this second got exactly the same dialogue uh, that uh, their counterpart did. Right. That's a tricky little bit of paperwork right there. Eh? Mm -hmm. yeah. about. Okay. And the other one is to a young fledgling voice actor mm -hmm. who wants to break into the video game industry, what piece of advice would you have for them? Uh, okay, so the first thing you're going to need to do is get back to uh, the late mid 1990s and go to that audition I did because that's all I did. I went to an audition and they kept hiring. Uh, so yeah, I guess the advice I would give is improv, as I mentioned, comes in very handy and is a valuable tool that you can apply to nearly any branch of acting. Uh, so the lessons it teaches you are applicable, as I say, not just to voice acting, but to pretty much to anything that you're going to do in performance. So if you live in a city that offers improv classes, and most most major centers do have local improv troops, and most of them do offer workshops, I would advise uh, that you, you take some classes. And often, or at least uh, as was the case with me, you also uh, get to meet the other people who are taking classes, and you get to meet fellow performers. And if you end up on stage, then you get to work with, uh, with a lot of the people in your area. And the connections that you make there they they prove fruitful. That's what that's what I've learned. I've had other guests, and I'm talking writers, game designers, uh, live play people, also tell me that they will take improv or they have taken improv, and some of them have even taken it specifically to improve their writing or game design skills. I I guess in your opinion, what are some of those skills that improv gives us that can be applicable to writing, game design, or even just for your home game, just becoming a better DM or player? Mm. Oh, uh, the, as I say, uh, the lessons that improv teaches you are very valuable and they're very much uh, in line with what you're going to need when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. For writing and game design, certainly it teaches you the basics of narrative and dramatic structure, things like that, which come in very handy, of course. Uh, but one of the primary rules uh, of improv is acceptance and not blocking offers, and but instead advancing on offers. And, and of course, at its root, role-playing games are collaborative storytelling. And if you are accepting and you're following the rules of improv, accepting and making the other guy look good, and everybody else is also trying to make the other guy look good, it really opens up possibilities for your play and your table. And especially if you're a dungeon master, uh, improvisation is an invaluable skill because you can have as intricate a plan uh, or a pathway as you want, but once you encounter your players, that could easily go out the window immediately. Every time. They might decide that they want to speak to that random NPC that you barely made up a name for, and then you, rather than this guy that you put all the work into that they're supposed to meet at the next table, it's like, okay, I guess you're talking to Gary the Goblin now, and now you have to come up with Gary's backstory on the fly and try to, maybe, maybe you do 
eventually try to figure out a way that, oh, maybe I can use Gary to get them back into the story that I have planned or elements of it. Or you might just go, okay, that's out the window. Let's see what Gary's up to. For sure. For sure. So you're talking about the yes and rule I've heard before. Yes. Fantastic. Let's talk about live play and streamed games and YouTube games. You've done quite a few. I mean, you've done Wizards of the Coasts, uh, Stream of Many Eyes. You are, are are part of the Black Day Society. You've done a lot of shows and a lot of played with a lot of other people. What, I guess, in your opinion, first of all, was your favorite experience in that world? Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the Black Dice Society. That was a, a, one of my favorite campaigns of all time. I've been playing D&D a long time, and that recent campaign stands out as one of my favorites. Uh, I love Raven Luna. Uh, all through, like, the 3, 3.5 era, I was pretty much exclusively buying, like, the Ravenloft books. And, and uh, so when B. Dave Walters, who I met at the Stream of Many Eyes, uh, got in touch with me, and he, we'd had some conversations, so he knew I was a big Ravenloft fan. And so Wizards approached him to do the official Ravenloft stream to promote the Van Ripken's Guide to Ravenloft. And he got a hold of me and uh yeah, I was I was thrilled, utterly thrilled to to be part of that. Especially because not only did I get to be one of the player characters, I also got to be an NPC in the game, particularly one of my favorite NPCs in Ravenloft, Aslan Rex, the uh ruler of Darkon. So that yeah, that that was that was very, very fun for me to get to do. Uh, beyond that, uh, there's D&D in a Castle, which is a fantastic thing that I get to do uh, at least once a year, yeah. uh, which is what it sounds like, playing D&D in a Castle. I'm one of the guest dungeon masters there, and uh, playing in that sort of setting is, yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. I've also got to play with people who I re- whose work I read growing up, like Ed Greenwood. Uh, I actually got to play a game where Ed was playing Elminster, uh, and yeah, that was... That was great. I did that with uh, Six Sides of Gaming, and uh, Tommy Gofton brought me in for that one. I think that's up on YouTube somewhere. And, yep, yeah, uh, there's, yeah, there's been lots of games uh, across conventions and things like that. Also, just uh, beyond Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Call of Cthulhu stuff that I've been doing recently. I did a thing called Bookshops of Art, mm-hmm. which I served as the keeper, uh, the the dungeon master uh, for in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I think it's been officially announced that we are doing a sequel called Graveyards of Arkham. So yeah, the first one was, uh, let's see, we were contacted by Elder Eye Entertainment. That's my friends uh, Dustin and Devin from D4. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, they've they rebranded recently as Elder Eye Entertainment, but they actually got uh, my wife and her friend Darren Ormandy to write the scenario. Uh, and they've done, you know, we... We, uh, my wife and I actually met Aaron doing like a uh, Call of Cthulhu LARP stuff over in uh, the UK. And this was a private one. Uh, so it's not open to the public. It's just friends creating amazing bespoke uh, LARP experiences for other friends. And so getting to work with them on this uh, tabletop campaign was was a lot of fun. That sounds like fun. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, Bookshops of Arkham also also a high of my, my tabletop experience. This is like a dozen bucket list items that are just check, 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 check. Nice. Good for you. And D&D in the castle. Yes, and D&D in the castle. That looks so cool. I've, I've, I've thought about it a couple times, but... Many people have told me it's on their bucket, their nerd bucket list is to do that. And uh, and again, I'm fortunate enough to be, to be invited to be a dungeon master there. So, yeah. With all your experience in the live, live play and streaming world, are there any particular skills that you've learned in that process that you can then apply to either performance, uh, like voice acting or theater or improv, or apply to your own game? Are there things that you've learned from that that you can share with us? 
I think I, because I'm a Dungeons Dragons player, role player of long stand and nerd in general of long standing, it gives you a real well of knowledge that you can pull from uh, when you're improvising, just in terms of references and whatnot, but also just in terms of genre and uh, uh, story structure and things like that. And uh, again, you might not be doing something that's necessarily Lovecraftian, but you might be doing, you know, improvising a story that's set in the 1920s. And I know a lot about the 1920s because I play Call of Cthulhu. Very cool. So watching you play some of these stream games, especially the Ravenloft one, you stay in character the whole time. Like you are laser focused. There could be a conversation happening and you're still having emotional reactions on your face. And you don't see that very often. Like there's some really great live players out there, but that's rare. First of all, isn't that exhausting? Sometimes three hours in, like, how do you do it, man? Oh, I mean, it's only three hours. I mean, I, I, you know, we're doing a show, so I'll be uh, sort of like if you were on stage during that, you would, you would probably, you wouldn't just go, hmm, I'll check my phone and see what's. So, uh, so yeah, if you're playing a character and you're in a show, that I mean, it's again with theater guys, so that's just my instinct is that yes, you're you're still in character. Uh, also, as I say, it's only three hours, and I've done improv shows that literally last 50 hours uh there's yeah, yes yeah they're called like uh here in edmonton there's a thing called the sopathon uh over in london they call it the improvathon i've been to that a few times and that is usually 50 hours one single narrative and you've got actors coming and going of course but there's usually a core group of actors who try to do as much of the whole thing as possible and i've done you know i've, I've gone all the way through like well over two dozen times now uh and it is, it's a great, it's a great thing uh, for if you're, again, a nerdy improviser like me, you just immerse yourself into this fantasy world and see where it takes you. Uh, because, of course, by the end of that thing, you've been pretending to be someone else besides you for two days and you're sleep deprived yeah. and the reality of the show becomes very, very all in place. Where do you, where do you pull stuff from? Like when you're 48 hours in or 46 hours in and your brain is shutting down and you just want to shut down completely how do you react to things how do you how do you do the yes and when i think it, it actually in some ways becomes easier because like you know your internal sensor is has fallen asleep at his desk by that point and you also yeah you're you're not acting you're reacting you're you're very much in the moment uh and it's i the first few times I did it, yes, I did experience visual and auditory hallucinations. But something about it, uh, your body gets used to it. You know, I, in some ways, I miss the hallucinations uh, because they made the whole experience a little, a little more lively. And you still get very tired. You still get very tired, of course. Uh, but you don't hit that wall. It's uh, it's always fun to watch somebody who's doing it for the first time. <laughs> the old hands watching those who who are, who are doing it for the first time. Sounds like somebody needs to run like a 52-hour D&D game with no sleep and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Well, there is something being run at D&D in a castle called Hardcore Mode, which is basically you'll be playing D&D, you will sleep for eight hours, you'll get up and play more D&D. And it's, uh, it's, it's even more extensive than, uh, than the normal offering. They did uh, offer it to me, and I was like, hmm, I, I do. I, 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 the fact is I spent all my downtime doing uh, prep because again, like you, you're going to have to change things because of the stuff that the characters did. So I do heartily endorse the DMs who are taking that on. Okay, so as we mentioned before, there's the Call of Cthulhu Kickstarter thing coming. 
and you've done Call of Cthulhu in the past, as you mentioned. How do you establish that particular atmosphere that, that is part of that genre, that Call of Cthulhu horror atmosphere as a DM and as a player? How do you bring that to life? I think it's a matter of talking to your group first. The, the, the importance of Session Zeroes uh, can't be stressed enough. Just finding out what everybody is looking for from the game. Uh, so you never want to drop your players in at the deep end of just like, you know, truly visceral horror and describing things uh, because some people might have phobias. Some people might just be like, I don't want to hear descriptions of people's eyeballs being peeled right. or or whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes uh, you do check in with your group and find out what does everyone want to get from the game and what is everyone's level of comfort with, especially with horror, because that's. That's the sort of thing that uh, could end up, say, lessening someone's enjoyment. Of right. That said, if everyone is on board, then I think it's it's really a matter. It's it, it's not it's nothing that you can do as a GM. Uh, it's something that the players and you will do together because just you can describe scary things all you want, but if their characters aren't reacting like they're scared, then. You know, you it's 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 finding a balance. So, fringe is coming up. Can you give us a hint on whether or not Mark's going to be at the fringe? I can just tell you. Oh, please. Yes, uh, I will be at the fringe with, uh, as per usual, at the Varscona Theater with Gordon's Big Bald Head. Uh, this year, our show is called Gordon's Big Bald Head. The heist is right, and we're going to be doing our usual format at the fringe, which is uh, myself. Jacob Bannigan and Ron Peterson, uh, we are Gordon's Big Bolt Head. We take the Fringe Program, which is the festival guide that has a listing of all the shows that are being performed at the festival. We give it to the audience. They select a random show. We read the synopsis of that show out loud. And then we improvise our own version based solely on the synopsis. Uh, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. We've been doing that for many years now. I think we first started doing that format in 2008. Uh, as mentioned, we were uh, the, Gordon's Big Bolt Head actually came from the Three Dead Trolls in a Baggy show. Like that's that's his original genesis. Uh, I'm the only founding member left, <laughs> but uh, Jacob and Ron, of course, uh, joined in subsequent years, and uh, we made the shift from sketch comedy to improv. And this format that I just described to you is what we've been doing for oh, 15 years now. Nice. You mentioned oh, we're talking about the Fringe. Um, the Fringe has in the past, at least I know, had D&D improv. There was a D&D improv show of some sort. I hear that you do D&D improv. Do you do? Yes, I think uh, you're talking about Yeg D&D, which is another group here in town. But uh, I will I will take the status of, yes, we were the original Edmonton D&D show. But that said, there are improvised Dungeons & Dragons shows across the world. Right. As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm aware of ones in Australia, in the States. Uh, uh, I've taken my format over to England for the Improvathon that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Actually, the first one that I heard of was Winnipeg. They've been, they've had a long running improv D&D show. And in fact, I actually checked in with them. I was like, do you guys mind if I started the improv D&D show? Like, they were cool with it. Uh, my format is different from theirs. They uh, they go all out. Like They've got people dressed as monsters waiting in the wings to run in. And they they're also uh, have like a dungeon master and a player who's basically controlling all the player characters. Uh, mine is a little more like Dungeons and Dragons, as you would experience it around the table, in that I'm the dungeon master. Uh, we have our player characters who are in their full armor, weapons. They have all their equipment, uh, their stat sheets. They have all of that. 
Uh, but I play essentially everything else they encounter. So I'm all the monsters, but I'm also the townspeople. I'm the the mentors. I'm the king who gives them their mission. I'm I'm anything else that isn't them. And uh, that's a great a great show. We've been doing it for geez. I started it back in I want to say 2010 uh, at Rapid Fire Theater. I've subsequently exported it uh, to Dad's Garage Theater in Atlanta. Uh, and they usually uh, bring me down uh, because they actually do a run of it every season. Uh, and they usually bring me down for at least the premiere and sometimes the closing show of that as well. They usually do like an eight-week run. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're a great bunch to improvise with. I always have a great time at Dad's Garage. And we'll be doing it, uh, me and Dad's Garage Theater, at Dragon Con. Uh, we did it last year during the pandemic. We actually did one an online version with Colin Mockery from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, who is an old friend and always a pleasure being provided with. And uh, and a very good sport because he's never played Dungeons & Dragons, uh, actual Dungeons & Dragons. So, But he's played with us enough times now that he's, his character actually has a history and you know continuity and things like that. And everyone's leveled up as we go along. So it's a, it's a great way to combine my two loves uh, of RPGs and improv. Well, you mentioned cons and we talked about... Ravenloft and Call. Well, I heard you're doing some at Gen Con this year. I am. What are you doing at Gen Con? I'm doing a number of things at Gen Con. Uh, first and foremost, I am going to be the keeper of arcane lore for a Call of Cthulhu game, uh, and that is going to have a couple of folks from the. Let's see. Well, actually, Nora from Black Dice Society. She'll be she'll be in the game. Uh, Josephine, who I've worked with, Josephine McAdam, who I've worked with on L.A. by Night. Luis, uh, who I've, uh, he. And I have played like a number of pandemic uh, Zoom games together, and yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. Oh, and Harley Kane, who I've never had the pleasure of playing with, but we'll play our first game together. I'll also be doing uh, some meet and greets at the Chaosium booth, and let's see what else. I made so many promises. Oh, I'm going to be playing in a Cobalt Press game, uh, just as a player, just as a player. So not, not too much prep on that end for me. And I'll be running a game for Dodgers, uh, D&D in a castle. They've actually uh, got a number of the regular DMs to sign up. And this will be the first sort of public game, you know, game open to the public that I've ever DM'd at Gen Con. So I look forward to that as well. You're going to have a hell of a Gen Con. Mm-hmm. It will be packed with incident. So we've kind of gotten to the point of the show where uh, we get to the kernel, the thing that made me start this show in the first place. In the back of my brain, I have this theory that there's this magical space that exists between storycraft and game design, between playing games and reading books, between improv and and running a game. There's this magical space where all these people can come together, they're able to just talk and hang out. In your opinion, what would that magical thread be that pulls us all together? What makes that space special? Well, I mean, let's face it, we all like pretending. Pretending is really at the root of all of this. I, If you go to my Twitter page, you will see I describe myself as a professional pretender. Uh, and, and, and I think uh, all across social media. On threads now, too. I'm on threads. Yeah. And <laughs> got to get that in there. Yep. And that's what I do for a living. I, I pretend for a living. And I'm very lucky to get to do so. That's a fantastic way to make a living. In your opinion, why is storytelling important? Storytelling is really how we make sense of the world and everybody wants to the world to make sense and to give it context and to teach us lessons and also to just escape, sometimes to escape and uh, retreat into a fictional world. 
And it doesn't have to be a retreat in a bad sense. It can be like, ah, I must visit this fictional world for a bit. And then I think that will inform my journey through the world. Right. We're almost ready to walk out the door. I have, I like to ask a series of quick fire questions where you don't have to think too hard about it. It's just top of the brain kind of, you know. So what's your favorite drink? Favorite drink? I usually go for a beer. Uh, if we're talking mixed drinks, I'm quite partial to a dark and stormy, which is ginger beer and dark rum. The twist of lime. There you go. What is your favorite game world? And I was told by Dave that you can't answer Ravenloft. I cannot answer Ravenloft. Nope. Okay. Well, it is. That's basic. <laughs> I mean, if, if Ravenloft is cut off to me, I'd probably go with Faerun, go with Forgotten Realms. Lots of hours spent there. Although Greyhawk was, you know, my, my very first introduction. Yeah. And... When I was doing my own campaigns as a DM at home, you know, my my world was basically like, ooh, I, I like the Yawning Portal. It's in my world. And it's like, uh, and yeah, sir, uh, you know, the Pomarge can be in my world and Ayus can be in my world. And so a weird patchwork of things that I liked and like, oh, I read this article in Dragon Magazine. I'm going to put this in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Faerun, Faerun is up there, definitely. But if we're talking about all, are we talking about all? Every video game is... Board games, role-playing games, movies. I mean, the Marvel Universe, the 616 Marvel Universe, uh, that's that's where I spent a lot of time. So uh, that's up there, too. And let's face it, the, the Cthulhu Mythos is also very near and dear to my heart. So, yeah, it's hard to pick. Hard to pick. And Mass Effect. I have to say Mass Effect because, of you know, Commander Shepard helped make my mortgage. So, yeah. And it, and it was an amazing, it is an amazing world. Like, that's a very well-developed. And so, it very well-developed. I mean, you could, if you wanted to, spend your entire game just reading codex entries and yep. and might not scratch the surface so a lot of lore there mm. and and of course as i mentioned i got to see that world being built because i got i was in when they you know before anyone was cast when it's just like this is what a turian looks like you know that sort of thing so yeah it was really fun to see that uh constructed what are you playing these days are we talking uh tabletop or video game i leave them open on purpose what do you whatever well to your mind uh, quite a bit of Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I also just recently uh, got to GM uh, a Pathfinder 2nd Edition game for Demiplane called The Clawfer, uh, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I had to cram the Pathfinder 2nd Edition rules into my head. but And, you know, didn't always succeed because I found myself defaulting to, it's like, oh, this, oh, wait, that's the indie. Right. Yeah. But uh, but that that was a great group and, and a lot of fun. And that's up on Demiplanes right now. Uh, as far as video games, I find myself, I, I am waiting with bated breath for Baldur's Gate 3 from Larian. Uh, I was in the other Baldur's Gate games, and I love I love the world, as mentioned. So everything I've heard about this game, I've purposely not played any early access stuff. I want I want it done and complete and every every all the classes and everything before I even touch it. But I've heard great things, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I always find myself dipping back into the Fallout games. I am a big fan of the Fallout games and the world and art design and just everything about that. So Starfield, yeah, that's that's definitely on my radar. I'll be watching that. But you know, there's a if you find me playing video games, there's a good chance it'll be playing something old. It's like, are you still playing Skyrim? It's like I just jump back, I just dip back in, I just dip back in. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, always fun to, re to revisit. That got me through the first months of the pandemic. I just, that's all I did. Because I, I still had it. I hadn't, I hadn't cracked the plastic. It was like, well, looks like this is a sign. This is the time to play Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, and what a great game. It's a fantastic world. 
Uh, I even go back and play like even older stuff, like not just like Fallout 4, but like on occasion, uh, Fall. I did a, you know, last year I did a replay of Fallout New Vegas. Wow. You mentioned that you, you're playing a lot of D&D and some Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Is that all like, is it all stream stuff and at work, like not work, but like, is that all professional running stuff or do you still have home game? Do you still play casually with friends? Uh, I, during the pandemic, I actually had a game we were playing twice a week because everyone was available, oddly enough. And this was a game with some friends of mine in the UK and our DM was actually in New Zealand. So he had to get, he was getting up at like 6 a.m. Uh, actually, I, I should mention it's Darren Ormandy, one of the co-writers of Bookshops of Arkham. He was, he was getting up at 6 a.m. so that he could play D&D with uh, his UK and Canadian friends. <laughs> and, uh, and we certainly admire him for that. Uh, and there, I, there are still drop-in games that I, I pop into every now and then. The pandemic really, I think, it, it made everybody download Zoom and everybody get on Roll20. So yeah. it's only a lot easier uh, and for people to just go, oh, yeah, I'm free this afternoon. I think I'll play. Are you reading anything right now? Any good books? Yes, actually. I was. There's a comic book uh, series that I've been waiting for decades to read. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Miracle Man. It's so, uh, let's see, the the first, I mean, he's actually a character from the 1950s who was a ripoff of Captain Marvel, uh, the original, or Shazam, as he is known today. And he was a British version. Uh, and Alan Moore wrote a particularly well-received and very influential series for, uh, I think it was Warrior and then Eclipse back in the 1980s. Once Alan Moore wrapped up, Neil Gaiman took over and was writing, he wrote a series called the Golden Age and the Silver Age was the Silver. It was Miracle Man, the Silver Age, uh, and one issue of it came out, and then Eclipse Comics went bankrupt. And then there was it, there's whole YouTube videos, like hour long YouTube videos, about the legal entanglements behind this, uh, which prevented this comic from coming out until now. Like it's been it's well, it's like thirty years essentially. Uh, and uh, for a time, Todd McFarlane owned the rights, and then there was some dispute over whether he'd actually correctly bought the rights from the right person, and there was all this stuff going on back and forth, a legal battle with Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane, and, uh, you know, Marvel was got involved because Marvel, ironically, actually owns the rights now. They're the reason why the original title, Marvel Man, had to be changed to Miracle Man, and it's, it's if you want to do a deep dive on YouTube, get into that. So, yes. Finally getting to read Miracle Man the Silver Age is uh, a crowning achievement. And this is Gaiman. Gaiman penned this. Like, this is Neil Gaiman and uh, Mark Buckingham, the artist. I, I I own everything Neil's ever written, so I can't believe I haven't. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, they have collected editions out for Miracle Man Apocrypha and Miracle Man the Golden Age. And uh, single issues of the Silver Age are coming out hmm. right now. Cool. On my list. Thank you, sir. Not at all. What three films should every performer or DM watch? Mm. Let's see. I can tell you my three favorite movies. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. That works. Uh, let's see. You know, of course, I love you see the Swords of the Wall. I love the Lord of the Rings movies, of course. You know, if I, if I was strictly going, it's like, yeah, you'd probably watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You'd probably watch yep. this or that. But if I just go with my favorite three movies, I would go with Jaws, Miller's Crossing, and with Neil and I. And they all feature fantastic performances, so... Last one. If you could sit down at a table with any four people in history, living or dead, and play any game, who would those four people be, and what would you play? Mmm. Anyone in history, living or dead? Yep. Okay, am I the DM? 
you well, that's up to you. Oh, okay. All right. Let's see. Hmm. Well, I mean, I've got all of history open to me, but you know, we've probably got a limited time for this session and we don't want to waste time like explaining the concept of, of role playing games to so so there should probably be people that know that. You don't want to be like, okay, Archimedes, this is how this works. This is, you know, uh, so uh yeah, let's see. Let's see. Okay, Napoleon, well you pretend to be a dwarf and yeah, so uh right. Uh, not that I'd pick Napoleon, but let's see. Uh let's see. Okay. Well, Gary Gygax, obviously. You're gonna you're gonna want Gary Gygax at that table. Uh let's see. So let's Gary Gygax. You know, I have met Matt Mercer, and he's a very nice man. And, uh, you know, we've, we've shared a meal and that sort of thing and, and chatted. But I've never actually got to play with Matt. And considering how busy he is, I'll, I'll use one on him. Even though he's he's a person who's, like, alive and that I've, I've hung out with. Uh, so I'll pick Matt Mercer for number two. So Gary Gagax, Mike Mercer, let's see. Again, going with people who actually have played or know how to play. Oh, Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. So, yes. Yes, and then maybe a wild card. Jim Henson. Oh. Just because he'd be good at all the voices. What do you think the odds are that he's played d and I don't know. I wonder. He strikes me as a sort of gentleman. I, I would yeah. I would assume I'd assume that a you know, the the Venn diagram of, of like improvisers and nerds is basically just a circle. I bet it's similar with puppeteers and nerds. So I I bet if Jim himself hadn't played, I'm sure he at least had it explained to him by some of his employees. Also, I just really want to meet Jim Henson. It's, it would have been cool. It would have been cool. Um, before we start packing it up here, uh, we've touched on a couple, but is there any projects that you're working on you want to talk about? Any things you've done in the past you want to pump or boat boost? We talked about Bookshops of Arkham. That's, uh, of course, on Chaosium's YouTube channel. You can check that out. The Black Dice Society is, of course, also on YouTube. You can check that out. Mm. Oh, uh, Tiny Plastic Men. You know, uh, I think I said it's available on Amazon in the UK and the US. And I think I think it's pretty much all up on YouTube. And if you're in Canada, it might be geolocked if you're elsewhere. There's something that I worked on fairly recently. And it came about uh, because of Bookshops of Arkham. One of the players, Patrick Logan, during when we were shooting that, he gave me a script for a Batman fan film that he was going to do and he wanted me to take a look at it and as soon as I saw it I went listen if uh, you're looking for anyone to play the Joker in this and he said oh that's why I gave it to you. and yeah it's a great script and I did my very best to live up to it we did that well let's see it would have been October last year I think it just went up a few months ago uh, also on YouTube uh, and once again it is called Gordon a Batman fan film and you can you get to see me Play the Joker, which was a thrill as a as a long time nerd to get to play the Joker. Great, I'm gonna have links to all those things in the show notes just to make sure that it's all out there. And I must commend also the work of uh, Mr. Jonathan D. Williams, who plays Gordon Commissioner Gordon in it, and uh, he is fantastic. And he was a great scene partner. I was, and the whole team did a really fantastic job. I'm very I'm very proud to be associated with that particular fan film. Uh, other other fan projects which I have done uh, are up on YouTube. Uh, again, just this year I worked on, I don't think it's up yet, but the latest episode of Bucketheads. Uh, that started with uh, a short called Bucketheads, a Star Wars story. Mm. And it is, it's basically the story of Nova Squad, which is a group of stormtroopers. And it's like from their perspective and them seeing like what's going on and like you know uh the first episode uh they they did that and then they did a it's currently in process uh a mini series uh also called Bucketheads, and uh the first episode is at the battle of endor 
and and this is in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything. But you know, it's like the stormtroopers uh, doing the doing their best. They're just doing their job, and then they look up and they see the Death Star explode. <laughs> okay, and then you go from there. Oh, cool! I can't wait to check that out too. Now, one more one more thing for the show notes. If you want people to find you online, where is the best place to find you? I am on Instagram as Mr. Mark Mir. That's M-R period Mark Mir. I'm on Twitter as Mark underscore Mir. Uh, I don't have unified social media. But, oh, wait, no, I do it on threads. As you know, you could just do the port over from Instagram. So on threads also, Mr. Mark Mir, M-R period Mark Mir. Uh, and, you know, on the Facebook and whatnot. And uh, you can find me uh, as the Keeper of Arcane Lore on Bookshops of Arkham and the upcoming Graveyards of Arkham. Fantastic. Oh, and I, one that I did not mention at all, and I, I am remiss, I also do a Vampire the Masquerade podcast called Pod by Night. And our first arc was called Stitch of Fate. The second is called Cracked Crown. Uh, but you can find Pod by Night uh, pretty much anywhere you find the fine podcasts. And I am uh, in that as a player. I play a Nosferatu named Max, uh, who... On my character screen sheet, I described him as a skinny Ben Grimm. So that's 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 his personality. Nice. Who's running that game? Uh, that's Mathis Gates. And he does a fantastic job. Great storyteller. Uh, and of course, if you are a fan of the Chiluminati pod, or sorry, Chiluminati podcast, you know his work. Mm-hmm. All right. I will throw that in there as well. Well, my friend, if that is it, then that is it. I believe it's it. I guess it's time for us to say adieu and exit stage left. Thanks so much, Gerald. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Ben. We will talk to you later. Once again, the fire is burning low, the tankards are empty, and my bed is calling to me. So, as our guest is taking his leave, I once again want to thank Mark Muir for his time and wisdom. I look forward to seeing him grace our podcast again in the future. And thank you for taking the nearby table and eavesdropping on our conversation. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave a review, tell your friends, and hit that interplanar subscribe button. Take care on your journeys, Wanderer. We hope to see you again next week, here at the Corner of Story and Game.